you're listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker podcast. Today's episode, Youth Work Ethics with Professor Howard Serkham. Let's get into this. You're listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker podcast with your host, Aaron Garth. Welcome back to the Ultimate Youth Worker podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Garth, and have we got an episode for you today. This is one of those episodes that we're pretty sure will be in our Hall of Fame. Today, we are joined by Professor Howard Serkham, a great friend to the Ultimate Youth Worker community and someone who's helped me personally recently think through the future of youth work education. Howard is a leading youth work academic and practitioner, and he's been a pioneer internationally in thinking about professional ethics for youth workers. And he was involved in drafting codes of ethics for youth workers across Australia, in Scotland, England, South Africa, Zambia, and across the ditch in New Zealand. Howard's book, Youth Work Ethics, has been widely influential in this discussion. He's also published widely on the sociology of youth, including the construction of youth in the media and the emerging influence of neuroscience. Howard and his partner, broadcaster Helen Wolfenden, have just relocated to Sydney after 10 years in Glasgow. Howard currently holds an honorary professorship in education with the University of Glasgow and is currently doing primary parenting for Oscar, age four, and Timothy, who's nearly two. Without further ado, let's welcome Professor Howard Serkham to the podcast. Welcome to the Ultimate Youth Worker Podcast, Howard. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. We've had some feedback from listeners on the podcast that they'd love to hear a few different people. And uh, as this month is our ethics month, I thought who better to bring on than Australia's most well-written youth work academic when it comes to ethics. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Not a problem. I guess, first of all, it'd be really interesting to know what kind of got you interested in ethics in the first place. I was teaching in the youth work program at Edith Cowan in Perth at the time. Yes. Um, which sort of had a, a bit of stuff in the program about ethics. It was a bit, I think it's probably true to say it was a bit wasn't fully developed, should we put it that way? Um, yes. And someone else was teaching it, Susie Quixley, actually. Oh, fantastic. Um, she left and I kind of took it over and I kind of got a bit interested in it from that. I, like lots of people, had been a bit ambivalent about um, codes of ethics in particular, all seemed a bit establishment and all of that. Yes. Um, but in the process of thinking that through, I sort of thought there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. Um, then we uh, we hadn't had a conference for a while. I was think I think I was chair of the, the Youth Affairs Council WA at the time, and uh, conference organised uh, organisers anyway, as part of the setting up for the conference, asked if I would write a draft code of ethics just to float at the conference, really as a discussion starter. So I did. It was a it was really quite a quick exercise, a sort of consolidation. I mean, when you've been teaching something for a while, sometimes you can put things quickly and simply, and I did. Yes. Anyway, we floated it. It was a keynote at the conference and a, and a follow-up workshop, and it 
you've got traction. So people thought this is good. You know, this is, uh, I mean, some of the wording um, on that original draft was a bit idiosyncratic, I think, or people, I mean, I, I kind of liked it, but the, <laughs> um, the, it had some connotations for people. They, as every draft I've ever written has in different kind of contexts, and it's a bit unpredictable about what, what those connotations or objections will be. Excellent, um, excellent. It was a first draft. I mean, some people have been banging on about that draft ever, <laughs> ever since and how terrible it was um, or how much it reveals about hidden ideology or whatever, but it was, honestly, it wasn't that complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and look, I think any one of us who's ever written an essay or something that we, we believe in uh, and uh, we, we, we throw out a, an idea quickly, we, we all think our, our idea is, is pretty damn good, yeah? <laughs> and it got refined over the years. I mean, it went, it went back to the, the... We used to have conference about every 18 months. Yes. In the May or October. And um, it went back to the conference to workshop every conference about the next three or four and it got more momentum and more people kind of got on board with it getting you know actually quite serious you know this is this is something that could be a thing and then finally we decided to put it to the conference for, for adoption in the field set aside two hours for for the the debate and people from the floor said we don't need to debate it. Let's just put it to the vote. It was all over in seven minutes. Voted it in unanimously. Well, that, that in itself says a lot about the fact that uh, you, you were able to workshop it and spend time uh, helping people to yeah. think through it. It smoothed it out and took off some of the corners and just some of the things that stuck in people's craw and that sort of stuff, found different words for things and... And it worked. Excellent. Well, if my research uh, is uh, serving me right, that that first draft was 1997, and uh, it was the 2003 conference that uh, that got adopted. Yes. That's about right. I would have said 2004, but you're probably wrong. Well, hey, uh, who knows with uh, our research? Hey. so over that kind of six or seven year period of workshopping it and uh, refining it and uh, getting people alongside it, uh, were were there any kind of key things that um, you you recall that um, you would have liked to have seen stay with the the code of ethics or was it pretty much just rubbing off the rough edges? No, I think it was pretty much rubbing off the rough edges. Um, There's some... Some of the terminology that I used initially was a bit archaic. I love those words, but um, for other people, they uh, connect with different things. Sure. One of the things that was critical for me in the process was I had a sort of one semester sabbatical somewhere in the middle of that, which I decided to, what I've decided to do is to um, get a desk in a youth agency concentrate on ethics, spend my time in the youth service reading about ethics and at the same time interacting with what staff were doing and and their relationships with young people and what young people were saying and all that sort of stuff. So it was in that kind of semester that the the core ideas supporting and surrounding the, co- the code of ethics happened and it's really out of those ideas the book finally happened in the end. Uh, that, was, that was a few years later but... The groundwork was done there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And particularly the discovery of Daryl Kern's work around professional ethics 
and the grounding of the professions in ethics that was that was and that was um that happened then yeah fantastic well that kind of leads on to my next question for you which was why do you think it's so important for youth workers to think about ethics because the core of youth work is a relationship and it's a relationship between a youth worker and a young person or young people and like all relationships the relationship is structured and channeled and governed and made productive by the agreements and expectations that constitute that relationship and that's fundamentally what a code what that's that's what the ethics is in the same way that you know when you get married and you get up and make those vows and those vows are a code of ethics for this relationship right yes and it's within that frame so that's what constitutes that that relationship there are things there that we will do there are things there that we won't do and we will commit ourselves to do these things and we'll commit ourselves to relinquish these other things and the youth work relationship is the same mm. now you if you really understand what it is to be a youth worker you can do that without ever codifying it in the same way that you can you can be married without ever saying those words the words are still useful in terms of helping you understand what that relationship is about and what's inside it and what's outside it and what it's for it's particularly useful when you hit on difficult times or when you when there is dilemmas or forces pulling you in different directions then it helps you it gives you a, a guiding line through the middle it also is useful if you're confronting people who don't understand what the relationship is and are treating young people badly or mm. just doing the wrong thing with respect to this kind of relationship. So I think the ethics stuff is important in, in youth work because youth work is an ethics. And if you are articulate about that, if you can say what it is that, that gives this particular relationship shape, then it helps us to be more conscious and that helps us to be able to interpret it to other people, enables us to understand how this relationship is different from a social worker's relationship with a young person or a teacher's relationship with young people. It helps us then and now when we're working with social workers or teachers or police officers to see what our role is and how our role is different, different from that and the terms on which we can engage with those other professionals. And it just makes intelligent. <laughs> yes, very much so. So j just to, to kind of think this through a little more, it's, it's about how we relate to the young people that we work with. And it gives us a guide of what is good, positive, ethical behavior while we're building those relationships. And it tells us, it puts, it puts lines in the sand so... We, so we are more conscious of when we're getting close to that line and even more conscious when we're crossing it. Excellent. I, I think you mentioned that, you know, most of us as youth workers could do this without having to have a piece of paper that says it. But uh, I, I think personally having the piece of paper there uh, makes it a bit more real for us. It makes it um, something that we have to engage with rather than something that we just might if we feel like it. It also gives us a common language. Mm. So, um, and I think it's really important, you know, if we are going to advocate for ourselves, then it, it gives us it, the terms of engagement, you know. Yes, yes. 
and I've just seen this lots and lots of times, gives you kind of shorthand, you know. So you're having a conversation about a particular a young person or a, a situation and, you know, one youth, youth worker can say, well, you know, I think this is, there's an issue of self-awareness here or I think there's an, you know, this is a confidentiality issue. Yes. Uh, you know, put you on the same page. Definitely. Definitely, and that uh, is a really good segue into uh, the next question, which is that the Fairbridge Code has been the basis for codes of ethics in WA, uh, obviously, uh, in South Australia, Tasmania, New South Wales. Why do you think it's been so widely picked up? Not South Australia. <laughs> uh, no, not South Australia? No, there's um, South Australia and Queensland have had an ongoing, there's been ongoing turbulence about whether codes of ethics are a good thing or not. Yes. So they've um, they've stayed. The line generally is that there's code of code of ethics makes youth workers more conservative. Yes. I have not seen any evidence of that at all. I mean that's that's a claim of fact, but I've not seen anything that indicates that um, youth workers in Queensland or South Australia are remarkably more progressive than <laughs> others. In fact, politically, we would say that uh, they were potentially less uh, uh, so. Um, you may well say that, Aaron, <laughs> of course, not in a position to comment. Not, not picking um, on our, our SA or Queensland uh, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, what I have seen is that is that the code and a consciousness of, of the ethical questions means that people engage in debate about it. People talk about it. People are conscious about it. People make it live. I mean, I think there's a misapprehension that the code of ethics is this kind of list of rules, and it's just not because you can't you can't do that. I mean that. The circumstances that youth workers face are so varied and you hit a different set of scenarios every day. There's no way that you could cover that with some kind of rule book or whatever. What you set down is is terms of engagement, you know, and the sort of core principles that govern your overall approach to things. Yes. So stuff about openness and honesty and um, stuff about, young people being your primary client, being the person that your primary duty is towards and whose interests that you will serve within the relationship. Um, some core ideas about confidentiality and how if there's limits to that, if you do, if you are in a situation where you will need um, to break confidentiality under certain circumstances, that young people know about that. You know, the unbagged unambiguous position that you are not going to engage sexually with the young people that you work with you know these kinds of things that they're not they're not rules they're um they're kind of a, a guide stated positions yeah and I think, you know anyone who's studied law or, or the like would know that uh, there's difficulty in putting rules in place because rules don't necessarily cover every option that uh, will come your way and so you have to have some level of uh, professional uh, openness and professional thinking in how you will apply rules anyway and that often comes from your code of ethics and it's often the case that more than one principle will be in play and they'll pull in, diff in, in different directions, you know? So you've got to 
the confidentiality issue, but there's also a duty of care issue, you know? So a um, young person's going to told you that they're going to do something, that something is potentially harmful or dangerous. You can't prescribe ahead of time which of those principles will predominate. Needs debate, needs conversation, needs thinking through. So there, there aren't any check, check boxes available. <laughs> it's, it's dirty, it's messy, it's, um, it's complicated, and who knows if you actually got it right in the end. Mm, which makes it difficult for some people to understand because we do like to have our check boxes and we do like to have uh, a guarantee in the work but uh, as we know working with people there's no guarantees you're in the wrong game <laughs> for sure well, there's some there's some fields that that work like that you know there is some settings in you know residential or juvenile prisons or you know some settings where one tries to have things as predictable as they can be. <laughs> but um, but it, uh, all the Royal Commissions uh, that have gone on recently into juvenile uh, detention uh, would tell us that uh, even in those uh, well-regulated areas, there's still yeah. massive grey areas. Totally. You mentioned a couple of points from, from the Fairbridge Code, things like primary client and confidentiality. What are some of the key issues to note that the Fairbridge Code really brings to the forefront for youth workers? I mean, I think one of the things that a, a code of ethics is, as much as anything, if not more than anything, is an identity statement. It's a statement of, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is... Um, this is these are the terms under which we engage with young people. And this is the kind of purpose behind our work. So it's that kind of stuff. And for me, you know, there, there are three key elements of that. One of those is that is that unambiguous position that says we are on the side of young people and we do not act against it. Um, other professions engage with young people, um, but... Uh, Unlike social work, our commitment on this question is unambiguous. The other element is the commitment to working with young people in their social context, in mm. their um, social situation, in their peer groups, in their relationships with school and family, in uh, the social situation in which they find themselves. And the, the, the third thing is about, is about what we're wanting to achieve within that, and this is under the empowerment provisions within the code and kind of translating from that a bit it's about working with young people to help them to to feel like their life belongs to them and the decisions that they make about their own life um you know not that you can be anything that you want but that, that the decisions that you make about your life and the things that you want for your life are important and they have some kind of traction that you can become somebody and become, become somebody good and that you're proud of. And I think that's that's where I would see the core. Excellent. I mean, there's some, lots of bits in the, in the um, code are pretty common across professional codes, things about confidentiality and duty of care and those sorts of things. There are things in the code that are not typical of codes of ethics, like provisions on corruption, that 
to say that it's not okay for you to advance yourself at the cost of the young people that you work with. That's not typically in professional codes, so I would argue that it ought to be. But there are these sorts of elements that are that make us distinctive, make us different from anybody else, and those and those elements are important. I'm glad you brought up the preventing corruption. Uh element in the code because uh, uh, in in the course of my studies and, and getting ready for this interview, I had a look at a few different codes of ethics and uh, found that very few had anything about uh, corruption or, or that, that transparent relationship in um, in uh, our work. Can, can you talk a little bit about why that particular one is in the code uh, a, a little bit more? I don't remember really <laughs> how I got there. Um, I can, I can, uh, I can remember the kinds of events that I was worried about. That I tried to distill. See, there's a process in that code of you know you've got all these kinds of experiences and um, been around youth work for a while and seeing these things happen and you think okay. How can I distill that into a single word? <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, or into a kind of two or three line clause. Um, and that's fun and hard. <laughs> um, uh, and the sorts of situations, the sorts of circumstances I was worried about is where it was about youth workers' self promotion. So yes. there was situations where youth workers were. Um, exposing young people, street young people, to the media, taking television crews out to where young people were yes. on the street, and I wasn't comfortable about that and thought, well, what covers that kind of self-promotion where the self-promotion is at the expense of the young people that you're working with? Yes. I mean, there were some much more, if you like, obvious situations of youth workers um, making off with the money and um, things like that. Yes. Uh, that's a bit more obvious. Um, situations where, a little less obvious than that, where like the co coordinator of a service was in a position to make judgments, budgetary judgments, including how much um, they themselves would be paid and where money was being moved from program expenses to coordinator salaries Take, taking away from the the programs for those young people uh-huh in order to pay yourself more um I, I i think we can all uh think of stories we've heard or or things that we've been around where say a youth worker has used equipment from the the surface that they're in and maybe not brought it back or things like that where it takes away from the young people that we're we're working with. Yeah, I think I think slightly more subtly, there was also something that I wanted to get at, which was about self-sacrifice. About there's, I mean, I think in some circles, not all, in some circles within youth work, there's a kind of a masochism that sort of says that unless you're close to burnout, you're not working hard enough, <laughs> or in, unless you yourself are in lots and lots of pain and living on a, um, a shoestring a shoe or unless things are really, really hard, then you're not doing doing a job. Yes. And so part of that, the part of the corruption thing was actually about the inverse of that. So we're saying, you know, that youth workers shouldn't advance themselves at the expense of young people, but 
implied in that is that it's okay for youth workers to advance themselves. Yeah, yeah, just um, not at the end. Just it's not okay a- to be paid well. It's okay to have decent working conditions. It's okay to go for promotion. We just can't throw our young people under the bus to get there. That's right. You've got to take, you know, that that um, hopefully with those kinds of advancements for yourself and for the profession, you will also be um, be carrying an advancement for the young people that you work with. Excellent. I guess the last question I had, and it kind of relates to the sabbatical year that you had, is how can youth workers implement ethical thinking into their day-to-day practice? There's been some interesting innovations on this, particularly in WA. Um, there's an article that that I wrote with actually with my with my son who's also a youth worker who who was practicing in WA at the time about implementing um, the code through using ethics cards so one of the things that they had it was accommodation service and accommodation services faced often with ethical dilemmas because you can have a young person in a service who is not traveling well but who's also creating the sort of situation where the other young people around them also don't travel well. So you've got sort of conflicting obligations under those circumstances and often faced with the question about whether a young person needs to be evicted or what happens under those circumstances. And they had a, they had a process where they had um, the cards, each clause of the card of the of the code was on a different card and when they were going through decision making about what needed to happen under these circumstances they would sort of pass the cards around and get different workers to argue from those different you know decide which of those of the clauses was relevant and get people to um almost do a devil's advocate kind of job of arguing from that position about what the action should it should be taken and on the basis of that conversation that would lead much in a much more in, informed and intelligent way to an ethical decision about what was right in this circumstance that's one one way in which i've seen it used productively i mean the obvious thing is just stick it up on the wall um so, so it's in people's face all the time including young people um so they know what the deal is the other situation I've seen it, it used in is in interprofessional working, which is often a situation in which ethical dilemmas emerge, often because our partners assume that we have the same ethical position that they do, and we often don't. And it's been used as a way of bridging that gap by sharing codes of ethics between different partners in an enterprise and having a conversation then about where the differences are and so then when there is controversy emerging or disagreement we can contextualize that in terms of the difficult stance that different people are taking and um, thereby kind of going oh yeah no I understand now why you take that position it makes sense in terms of the ethical position that youth workers take or that social workers take or whatever and very important in our supervision to be able to do that particularly where youth workers can be supervised by teachers or by uh, social workers or psychologists or who have very different codes of ethics to uh, our codes totally yeah actually been actually been used also 
um, quite intelligently in supervision within the agency as well. So as a way of um, of of workers taking a case to a supervisor for discussion um, and exploring the ethical components of the event and what was happening and how they dealt with it as a way of kind of prompting critical reflection. Yeah, great. I think as a tool for critical reflection, just looking at the Fairbridge Code now, 14 points to think through in each of your cases would uh, give you more than enough opportunity to be critically reflective in your case reflections. Absolutely. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time today. We'll uh, link to a few of those articles that you've mentioned. And of course, uh, your eminent book, Youth Work Ethics, which uh, is on pretty much every uh, uh, Australian degree reading list. If you don't have it, it's definitely one that should be on your bookshelf to reflect on regularly. Thank I you. It's quite good. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know the author and I can recommend him highly. <laughs> Howard, thanks so much for coming on board today. Guys, check out the show notes. And Howard, where can people find you if they want to hear more about what you're up to? I'm in flux at the moment. We just moved back to Australia a few months ago. So I'm kind of working out what happens next for me. I'm on email at h.circuma at yahoo.com. So I'm just doing a bit of sessional teaching at the moment and trying to work out what happens next. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Howard. That's it for this week, guys. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker podcast. If you liked what you heard, why not tell your friends and get them to subscribe to the cast?